Uh, my name's Ryan. I'd like to welcome you all to week nine now, right? Week nine of our series called uh, Peaks and Valleys, where we're looking at the life of King David. And today we are looking at what pretty much everybody considers to be the greatest valley of David's life. It's also um, maybe the most famous failure in the entire Bible. It's the story of David and Bathsheba. <clears throat> it's a story that covers two chapters, and so I'm going to kind of read you the highlights on the front end. Uh, and so I'm going to be in 2 Samuel. We'll start in uh, chapter 11. I'll read verses 1 to 5, 14 to 17, and then we'll pivot over to chapter 12. <clears throat> verses 1 to 5. It says, In the spring when kings march out to war, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and strolled around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, a very beautiful woman. So David sent someone to inquire about her, and he reported, this is Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam and wife of Uriah the Hittite. David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to him, he slept with her. Now, she'd just been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Afterward, she returned home. The woman conceived and sent word to inform David, I am pregnant. Verses 14 to 17. The next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, put Uriah at the front of the fiercest fighting, then withdraw from him so that he struck down and dies. When Joab was besieging the city, he put Uriah in the place where he knew the best enemy soldiers were. When the men of the city came out and attacked Joab, some of the men from David's soldiers fell in battle. Uriah the Hittite also died. Chapter 12, verses 1 to 7. So the Lord sent Nathan to David. When he arrived, he said to him, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one small ewe lamb that he'd bought. He raised it, and it grew up, living with him and his children. It shared his meager food and drank from his cup. It slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man could not bring himself to take one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare for the traveler who'd come to him. Instead, he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for his guest. David was infuriated with the man and said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. Because he's done this thing and shown no pity, he must pay four lambs for that lamb. Nathan replied to David, You are the man. This is God's word. <clears throat> And it's a hard hitter. Um, you know, there's a tendency with specifically this story uh, to just stand back and be disgusted with it. You know, you, you even read a story like this, and uh, it's amazing how it just impacts a room. You know, there's a feeling in a, in a group of people when you even hear about this story. And there's a, there's a tendency, I think, for us to stand on the outside of it as spectators and, and uh, kind of gawk at it and be amazed and disgusted by it and all that kind of stuff. Um, 
And while this is a story about, about David's failure, it's, it's, um, the truth is it's a lot more than just that. This story is a, it's a really powerful diagnostic tool that shows us um, not only the power of sin, uh, but how it can be dealt with and why it can be dealt with. And regardless of, of where you find yourself today, whatever you believe or, or don't believe or are unsure about or whatever, one thing that I know everyone tuning into this has in common is that none of us want to fail. None of us want to you know, make a mess of our lives. And this story that we're looking at today, when it's studied correctly, uh, it's able to do at least two things for us. Number one, it's able to help us avoid failures that we would otherwise fall into. Uh, but number two, what it's also able to do is to help us rise again from the failures that we're already caught up in. And so I want to look at this, um, this narrative sort of in three moves. I'm going to look at David's failure. I want to look at his interaction with Nathan the prophet. And I, I want to look at the response of God. And in this, we're going to see the picture of sin. We're going to see the beginning of rescue. And then we're going to see the promise of pardon. And so to begin today, um, I just want to start with looking at the picture of sin um, that, that David's failure here in chapter 11 shows us. Now, on the front end of our time, I kind of read you the highlight reel what I want to do now is just, um, I'll just walk you through it. I'll give you a summary for it so we can all have access to the same information and we can sort of feel the weight of this. The way that the story begins is David finds himself alone in Jerusalem. It was the springtime, which weather-wise and um, crop-wise was a really wise time, an appropriate time for kings to go out to war. So David sent all of his soldiers and commanders and advisors to go out to war. He remained at home in the palace. And so while he was home, one day he goes to his roof, he looks around, he sees a woman that's very beautiful to him, and he asks about her. And he's, he's told uh, not just that this woman's name is Bathsheba, um, but Bathsheba as attached to two different men. He's told that Bathsheba is both the daughter of a man named Eliam, and she's the wife of a man named Uriah. It's really significant that he's given both of those um, names, because both of those men were faithful servants and soldiers of David. Uh, and, and Uriah is even more than that, because as 2 Samuel 23 tells us, David, even within his, his, um, his armies, he had inner circles of his most trusted warriors uh, that he, um, he would lean on the heaviest, they sacrificed the most for him, and these were men that David re would really consider his friends, and Uriah was one of those 30. And so David, despite knowing the fact that this woman Bathsheba is, is not only the wife of one of his soldiers, but even, you could say, the wife of one of his friends... Uh, in one fell swoop, it actually is contained in one verse for us. We're told that he sent for her, he took her, he slept with her. And uh, <clears throat> I'm sure that David thought that's where the story was going to end. But not long after that, after some time had passed, Bathsheba sent word to him to inform him that she was pregnant. And so David then immediately kind of shifted into cover-up mode. And the first thing that he did was send word to bring Uriah back from the battle he was fighting in. Uh, in the hope that Uriah would do what literally any other man would have done in his place, which is take advantage of the time that he had at home to go to his house, uh, sleep under the comfort of his roof in his home, and to be intimate with his wife. But Scripture tells us that Uriah was a man of such um, character, he was a man of such loyalty, that when David sent him home from the palace, he refused to go to his home because he could not stand the thought of sleeping in the comfort of his own home while his brothers were out there sleeping on the ground in the midst of a battle that was not yet over. 
And so David found out about this. The next thing that he tried to do was get Uriah drunk, hoping that that would do the trick. But that didn't work either. And so David had to shift into phase two of his cover-up plan. And he wrote a letter to Joab, who was the leader of the military. And he told Joab to put Uriah at the front of the battle where the fighting was the fiercest and to have everyone suddenly withdraw from Uriah, leaving him alone and vulnerable and exposed and abandoned to die. Uh, and, and he gave that letter to Uriah to carry to Joab, which is incredible because it proves that David himself was aware of the character of Uriah. He knew that Uriah was such a strong, trustworthy, loyal man that there was no chance he would look at that letter and sell David out. And so Uriah winds up carrying his own death sentence to Joab, his commander, and Joab did what David, his king, commanded him to do. And so just like that, Uriah and a number of other Israelite soldiers had lost their lives. Now, when word got back to Jerusalem, Bathsheba did what anyone would have done in that day. She went into a a time of mourning. When that time was over, David sent for her again. He took her to himself, and he made her his wife. And that is the story um, in a nutshell. Now, I, I said on the front end, this is probably the most famous failure in the Bible, uh, probably a story that all of you have at least heard parts of before. But if I could, for a moment, I'd ask you to try to imagine what it would be like if you'd never heard this story before. And you were reading through chronologically through the Old Testament and the develop, de- development of the nation of Israel. If you read First and Second Samuel and you came here to Second Samuel chapter 11, this would hit you um, th- this would be as, as surprising, as startling, as disturbing, I think, as any twist that you have ever read or watched in any story you've ever seen, simply because of who the main character is. This is David. This is the one person in the entire canon of Scripture that we're told was a man after God's own heart. This is the king that succeeded in every area that his predecessor, King Saul, had failed This is the guy who writes his prayers down, and they go on to become a book in the Bible known as Psalms. And yet in the span of one chapter, he has completely become a monster, and it begs the question, how did it come to this? How do you explain this? And the answer that the Bible offers us is very simply sin. That's how you explain this. In the book of Genesis, when when God is talking to Cain, he tells Cain He says, sin is crouching at your door, and it desires to have you, or some versions will say to master you. And I I think the, uh, the imagery that God uses there is so telling for us because what he's basically doing there is he's likening sin to a predatory animal that crouches down and hides itself, makes it difficult, um, to locate, you know, tends to look smaller than it actually is, and it bides its time until you have your guard down so that it can leap on you, consume you, and devour you. That's exactly what happened to David in this story. And as simplistic as that might sound, that, okay, David did this because of sin, I think that's actually a lot more profound and a lot more satisfying than any other explanation you would find for a story like this. Because you and I are living in a culture right now in the modern West that increasingly believes this idea that mankind's problems are outside of us while the solution to those problems are inside of us. That's one of the hallmarks of a secular society. So for instance, I was 
recently talking to a friend of mine, and I, we got talking about all the nonsense that's going on in the world today, which he agreed is nonsense. And so I, I was just curious. I knew that he's not, um, you know, doesn't claim to be a Christian or anything like that. So I asked him, I said, okay, so the phrase, mankind is basically good, what do you do with that? Do you agree with that? And he told me that he does, but it's desperation, he said. Desperation is what makes people do all the terrible things that people tend to do. And that's a really common answer that you'll hear from, you know, for instance, a secular sociologist in the culture that we live in today, that mankind's basically squared away, but it's economic injustice or it's oppression or it's, you know, desperation or starvation, whatever it is, that leads to the atrocities of mankind. The problem with that explanation is that it just doesn't hold up. There have been a whole lot of people throughout human history that have done really terrible things who weren't desperate for anything at all. And one of those people is King David in this story. David is not at the bottom of the food chain. He's sitting on the throne of the most powerful nation in the ancient Near East, and yet he's the one oppressing and abusing and doing injustice to people. Another really common answer you'll you'll hear in our culture is that the the, the fundamental problem with people is low self-esteem. That's kind of secular psychology 101 would say that the reason that people act out is because they have a low sense of self-worth. Again, I find that to be remarkably unsatisfying, not only to explain events throughout the halls of history, but also to explain the life of David here. Because when I look at David, I don't see a guy who's suffering from low self-esteem. What I see is a guy who, who esteems himself way too highly, believing that simply because another man's wife looks good to him, he gets to take her. And because Uriah's life had become inconvenient to him, he gets to kill him. That's not someone suffering from low self-esteem. That's someone with a dangerously overinflated ego. And so what Scripture would say is that while, it would actually affirm both of those theories, by the way. While Scripture would say that absolutely things like desperation and things like low self-esteem can absolutely exacerbate the problems of mankind, Scripture would say underneath that that our primary issue, our most fundamental issue, comes from within us. It's the sin in our own heart. That's what happened to David here. Now, when you start talking about sin, most of the time, even if you've been in the church for years, most of the time when you talk about sin, the first thing that comes to somebody's mind is you know, morally wrong behavior that breaks God's law. And while that is certainly one, one way that sin can manifest itself, that's not the essence of what sin is. The essence of sin at its core is a posture of the heart. Follow me here. The essence of sin is a posture of the heart that denies our need for God and attempts to put ourselves in his place. That's the essence of sin, and that can manifest itself in all kinds of ways, you know, to the pride and self-righteousness of the Pharisees or the murder and the adultery of David. But that's what the essence of sin is. And one of the valuable things about this story that we're looking at today is is that it it gives us uh, sort of a diagnostic breakdown of how all sin operates in our lives, regardless of how your sin or my sin might happen to manifest itself in our lives. And so before we move on from this kind of first move, what I want to do, let me just take, like, take three observations out of David's failure here um, to show us how all sin in all of our lives will always operate, regardless of how that sin manifests itself. And while we do this, if I could just ask you for a favor, while we look at this, please don't approach this as a, as a window that you look through to see something out there. The way that this story should be approached is a mirror that we look into to see something in here. 
So, so, so let me real quick, there's probably about 45 different things you could pull from this story. I just want to pull three that, that um, David's failure shows us about how all sin operates. Number one, what David's uh, failure shows us is that sin begins with separation. Very first verse in this story, ver- chapter 11, verse 1, it says, In the spring, when kings march out to war, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel. They destroyed the, the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. Here it is. But David remained in Jerusalem. What we're reading here on the front end of this story, which is a verse so, so quick, you know, and everything else catches your eyes so much, you, you know, you almost don't notice that. What you're reading here is that before David made the decision to lust or to commit adultery or to commit murder to cover up those things, the decision that he made that led to every other decision was the decision to separate himself. And this always goes hand in hand with sin. Uh, Proverbs, I think it's Proverbs 18.1, says that anyone who isolates himself seeks his own desires. That's exactly what you're seeing on the front end of David's life here. Scripture teaches, really interesting comment made by Paul in Romans chapter 1, that every human heart has the law of God written on it, that we all have the law written on our hearts. And what that means is that regardless of what a person believes or doesn't believe about the Ten Commandments, about, um, you know, the Bible itself, or, or, or even if a person would say, I don't even believe that there is a God. You know, that we, I believe that we simply came here by purely accidental forces and there is no afterlife, no supernatural reality, all that kind of stuff. Paul would say, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, that every one of us has the law written on our hearts, which means that no matter what we try to tell ourselves or other people, all of us have this intuitive knowledge that there is a moral order to life and there is some behavior that falls outside of that moral order. So when you hear somebody, you know, articulate the idea that truth is relative, I I hope this doesn't sound offensive, no one believes that. Nobody believes that truth is relative. Nobody believes that it's ever okay to to do certain horrendous things that we've looked out throughout the, the most tyrannical empires through human history, that those things are okay in certain situations. It's just we happen to live in a society that's constructed a truth that says we can't do that now. Nobody believes that. Society could not function if anybody actually believed that. We call people that believe that sociopathic for a reason. Now, with that, with that, Because we have the law written on our hearts, what every human being has instinctively done since Genesis chapter 3, you see this in children as early on as they can exhibit behavior, is when we're practicing behavior that we know is wrong, we isolate ourselves, we separate ourselves, we hide ourselves. We've been doing that since Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve ran out on God, tried to sew fig leaves together. And whether or not that separation is, is psychological, you know, it might be psychological, it might be mental, it might be relational, or it might actually be physical like David's was here. But the point is, if you follow any catastrophic moral failure in somebody's life and you trace that failure back long enough, I promise you, you will eventually find a person who made the decision to separate themselves. Sin begins with, with separation. That's the first thing we see here. Second thing we see here is that sin is deeply deceiving. It, it's worth noting here that prior to this episode in David's life, had you asked David what the Ten Commandments were, he could have given them to you. And yet, while this was going on in his life, as you're going to see here in just a, a few moments, David was so blind to what was happening inside of him that God needed to send a prophet into his life to tell him a story to get him outside of himself just enough so that he could actually see what he had done and what he had become. You want to know why David needed that? You want to know why David needed somebody to get himself out of that? Here's what this shows us. 
Sin never feels like sin when we're sinning. That's why our feelings make such a poor tour guide for us throughout this life. I came across a quote this week from Eugene Peterson. Couldn't have put it better. He said, the subtlety of sin is that it doesn't feel like sin when we're doing it. David didn't feel like a sinner when he sent for Bathsheba. He felt like a lover. David didn't feel like a sinner when he sent for Uriah. He felt like a king. Secondly, sin is deeply deceiving. But the third thing, I, I think this is the most sobering one with a story like this that I want to point out before we move on, is that sin's consequences go so much further than we think they will. And I want to I draw this out from, from two different angles. I want to look at the immediate impact, and then I want to look at the long-term impact. First off, if, if you were paying real careful attention, you notice this is a really interesting detail of the story. David's original plan to Joab was, you send Uriah out there, have everybody abandon him, and then Uriah will die. Can I just point out something? That's a really stupid plan. Because if anybody with half a brain would have seen that, they would have known, okay, this is a hit job. David's doing something wrong here. So Joab, commentators will tell you, actually knew that that was a poor plan, and so he modified it without David's permission. And he sent a whole contingent of soldiers out there with Uriah, all of whom died according to the report. Now, here, here's, here's why I, I bring this up. The point is, David didn't plan for that. David didn't even desire that. And if you zoom out to the beginning of this story, you know, when David first glanced over at Bathsheba, in that moment, he wasn't planning for Uriah to die, let alone a number of other unnamed and, and otherwise innocent Israelite soldiers. But by the end of the story, that's exactly what happened. David probably has more than a dozen bodies on his hands. And, and one of the things that that's meant to convey to us is that our sin will always have greater impact on the people around us than we think. This is a, this is a heavy thing, but it, it's, 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 it's just something we got to square with. Your sin might be personal, but it's not private. It never is. Because we are, we are created in the image of a relational God, meaning we are relational creatures, which means that all of our choices... All of our sin will always eventually have relational impact on the people around us. It doesn't matter if you're married with kids or you're single living by yourself. Our sin will always impact the people around us and we'll almost never see what that's going to manifest itself as in the heat of the moment. That's the immediate imp impact. But secondly, the long-term impact of this story, which I think is even more sobering, while this story, as, as you're going to see before we're done here, because we, we're, we're getting all the heaviness out on the front end. What you're going to see before we're done with this is that this story does wind up being an amazing display of God's grace. However, if you read this in the context of 2 Samuel, what you'll see is that this episode in David's life wound up fracturing his family and in his kingdom in a way that nothing was ever the same after this. Nothing was the same. And actually, as a matter of fact, this sin by David in this episode in his life, whatever you want to call it, this wound up sowing seeds of destruction that people generations after him would wind up reaping because that's what sin does. It'll separate you, it'll deceive you, it'll hurt the people around you, and it will cost you so much more than you think it will. That's the picture of sin. Now I want to talk about David's rescue, and this is where this is going to get, I think, a lot more practical and applicable to us. Chapter 11 ends with David thinking that this thing's behind him. Uriah's dead. This has a nice bow at the end of it. But the final verse of chapter 11 says that the thing that David did displeased the Lord. 
And so in the beginning of chapter 12, God sends a prophet who was actually a friend of David into David's life. And what Nathan, his name's Nathan the prophet, what Nathan winds up doing for David is, I think, the best picture in the entire Bible of what Proverbs is talking about when it says that the wounds of a friend are faithful. So Nathan, the prophet of God, comes into David's life. He walks into the palace and he begins telling David the story of of, uh, an injustice that had taken place in, in the kingdom which was a totally normal thing. In the, in the ancient Near East, kings also served as judges, so this was not a weird thing for David to hear about. And so Nathan tells David the story. He tells him uh, that there was a rich man and a poor man. And the rich man had you know, ca- seemingly countless cattle and sheep to choose from. He was extremely wealthy. Meanwhile, this poor man had only this one lamb to his name, and he loved this lamb so dearly that it had basically become uh, a part of his family, like a daughter to him. And so one day this rich man had company over and he wanted to put out a meal for his company, but he couldn't bring himself to take from any of the countless cattle and sheep that he had. And so he went to this poor man and he stole the one lamb that this poor man had and he slaughtered that lamb and he used it for a feast, not even to provide for the poor man, but for himself and his guest. Uh, That's basically the story. Before Before I get to David's Um, response here, I just want to point out the way that Nathan approached David here really is, when I say that this is where this really begins to get applicable for us, here's where it does. This is an incredible guide for how you are supposed to confront somebody. Uh, Because on the one hand, um, Nathan did not annihilate David. On the other hand, he also didn't avoid him. Uh, On the one hand, Nathan could have come to David and completely unloaded on him. All right, he's, he's, he's a prophet of God. He has authority that's been given to him by God. Nathan could have walked right in the palace that day and said, David, God knows what you did. I know what you did. This is disgusting. You should be ashamed of yourself. You're going to pay dearly. It's time to repent. And not a word of that would have been wrong or incorrect. It just wouldn't have been very effective. You know, it would have made a point. It just wouldn't have made a difference. On the other hand, you know, Nathan could have completely avoided David because it, it, think about his position for a minute. I mean, when, when God comes to Nathan and says, hey, I need you to go confront David about his adultery and the murder he just committed to cover up that adultery, Nathan could have really easy said, you know what, God, I've been thinking. I've had a great run, but I'd like to put in my two weeks as a prophet. So thanks for the opportunity, but I think this is, this is tailor-made for somebody else because what do you think is going through his mind? You know, anybody in Nathan's position is thinking, okay, so this guy, this, this egomaniacal king has just committed murder to cover up his adultery, and you want me to go publicly confront him about his adultery. That's risky, to say the least, but the point is, it's always risky to confront somebody with news that they need to hear. It's always risky, and Nathan does it anyway. He doesn't annihilate him. He doesn't avoid him. Instead, he engages him with this story that would have been so gripping to David. Because remember, before David was in the palace, he was in the pasture. He was a shepherd long before he was a king. And so this story about taking somebody's lamb from them. I mean, David didn't come from a wealthy family. Who knows how many his own father had. This would have really resonated deeply with David. And by the end of this story, David is out for blood. And so he tells Nathan, the person who did this deserves to die. And in the greatest application in the history of preaching, Nathan drops the bomb on David. 
And you can, like, you can see his just outstretched hand. You know, the, I've always heard it said the bony finger of Nathan the prophet. We don't know what his hands were like. I don't even know if that's an expression. You, you just picture him pointing at David in the chest, and he says, you're exactly right, David. The man in that story does deserve to die, and you are the man. And right then and there, if nothing else positive can be said about David in this story, the one thing that can be said you know, to his credit, is that right then and there, having no leg to stand on after that, he owns it. And he says, I've sinned against the Lord. Now, before, before we move on to this and we talk about how God responded, which, like I said before, it's where this story really gets hopeful, um, we have to apply this. And there's two ways to do this. On the one hand, the question that this interaction between Nathan and David should have, I'll personalize it for you, should have you asking uh, which it's had me asking all week, is, is very simply, are you willing to be a Nathan? Temperamentally, I think we all tend to fall on, you know, one, one end of the spectrum. You, you know, we, we, some of us, I mentioned this earlier, we tend to, to go the route of annihilation when it comes to confronting, or we tend to go the, the, the route of avoiding when it comes to confronting. Some of us, because of our temperament, um, you know, we, we err on the side of annihilate, meaning maybe you're the type of person that just doesn't really have trouble confronting anybody at all. Maybe the trouble that you have is you can't stop confronting people. Maybe you're a, a pro at seeing into the problems of someone else's life and you just can't keep yourself from telling them all the things that they need to hear. Um, but the, 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 the problem with that, more often than not, is that you, you fail to engage with the person you're speaking to the way that Nathan engages with David here. And so your words, while they might be true, they're not helpful. You might make a point, but you never make a difference because your words just come across as judgmental, they come across condescending, they come across very uncaring, and so it just sort of causes the other person to put their walls up. For others of us, we err on the other side, and, and the issue is not that we annihilate when it comes to confrontation, it's that we avoid it altogether. And maybe you've told yourself, this is gonna hurt, maybe you've told yourself the reason that you don't like confronting other people is because you hate the way that it makes them feel, when the truth is you hate the way that it makes you feel, and that's why you don't do it, which is actually a really self-centered thing. But regardless of, of, of where you, you fall on that spectrum, let me just say this. There's a really good chance that whoever you are listening to this right now, I would be willing to bet that God has put somebody in your life that needs you to speak the truth to them. And that's, a, that's not the funnest place to be. That's risky. Um, you know, when you gear up for that, I've had a lot of conversations like that in, in my life. Uh, you know, my hands will start shaking, my heart will start pounding, that, that adrenaline, that fight or flight thing goes. It's not fun. I don't think anybody particularly loves confrontation. But, but can I just ask you a question? Because I'm sure that, that a number of people are already connecting the dots here in their own life. As hard as that confrontation that you have ahead of you might be, can I just ask you a question? Where would David have been without Nathan? You know, based on what I see in chapter 11, there is absolutely no reason to believe that David would have turned this ship around by himself. Look how far this guy had already fallen. You take Nathan out of David's life, there's no telling how much more he ruins his life or, or the lives of the people around him for that matter. The way that I read this story, Nathan basically saved David. And there's a good chance that God has brought someone into your life and brought you into someone else's life, that he's called you to do the same thing for them that Nathan does for David in this story. That's the first way that we can apply this. The second way to apply this, and in some ways this might actually be more important, 
is to look at this interaction between David and Nathan and, and, and ask yourself the question, do you have any Nathans in your life? You know, it's easy for, for me to read this and say, okay, I got to get better at confronting. And I start thinking about all the ways that I failed to do that and I can do it better and all that kind of stuff. Uh, however, if you go down that road too far, you know, we run the risk of missing the fact that you and I are David also, and we need to be confronted also. We need to give people permission to speak into our lives, to tell us hard things, to challenge us. And with that, we can't fall apart and crumble under the weight of criticism or lash out at them and punishing, punish people for speaking into our lives and telling us the things that we need to hear. So let me just, I'll, I'll bottom line this point with this. Maybe this, this is going to, maybe someone will find this relatable. If you are anything like me, you spend a lot of time telling other people what you're thinking or what you're planning to do or what you've already done. Uh, I'm just, I'd ask you to take a self-inventory. When's the last time that you paused long enough to ask somebody what they think of what you're doing or what they think of what you're thinking? I mean, when's the last time that you grabbed somebody and simply said, hey, I, I spend a lot of time telling you what I'm thinking and what I'm planning and, and you know, the, the decisions that I'm making, the trajectory that I'm setting, but would you do me the favor of being Nathan for me? Would you do me the favor of speaking into my life and challenging me if necessary? You know, what do you think about the way that I'm handling this situation that I'm in right now? What do you think about the, the, the decisions that I'm making and the trajectory that I'm setting? Or just more broadly, what do you think about the person that I'm becoming? That is, that's an incredibly hard question to ask because it requires a great deal of security and self-awareness. But can I ask you, how much wiser a, a, a people would we be if we regularly practice that? I mean, how much better of a, of a, of a husband or wife, you, you know, a father or mother or a, a boss, employee, or just a person would you be if you started incorporating that discipline into your life even now of approaching somebody that loves God, that loves you, whose life you admire, and say, hey, open-handed willingness, you have a hunting license. Go hunting in my life for what you think needs to die. So, so, so based on this interaction, the two ways we apply this, on the one hand, the question we should ask is, are we willing to be Nathan? On the other hand, the question is, are we willing to hear from a Nathan? All right, so, so, so David has his entire life stopped on a dime by this confrontation with Nathan. He repents, and so now the question is, well, how is how's God going to handle this? And this is where this story is... Um, I would say initially confusing, but in the end, extremely encouraging for us all. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, it says, David responded to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. Then Nathan replied to David, the Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. Now, that's incredible to me. I, I pointed this out on the front end. The author of this story deliberately meant to show you and I how out of control David had become. In the span of one verse, we're told he sent for her, he took her, he slept with her. It's written that way to show us the complete lack of restraint in David's life in 2 Samuel 11. It just happened. It, similarly, within the same verse that David confesses that sin, it's not even a verse later that, that we wait to see the verdict. Within the same verse of David's confession, God forgives David, which, which is, is 
it's written that way to show us how eager God was to forgive David. It's almost as though God was more willing to forgive David than David was to sin in the first place. It's this unbelievable picture of grace and mercy and forgiveness, which we love in the West. But I think if you sat on verse 13 for, for really any period of time, as great as it initially appears, it leaves a lot of questions that have to be answered. Because you look at this story and you think, all right, David's done some really serious things here. David's really hurt a lot of people here. And, and that, amen, that he acknowledges his sin and he confesses and all that, but, but you're telling me that's just it? This whole thing's going to go away now? And the answer is no, it's not. It's not just going to go away because Nathan isn't finished speaking. Verse 14, however, because you treated the Lord with such contempt in this matter, the son born to you will die. If you read this story real carefully, you remember that when Nathan told David the story of the two men, at the end of that, David, as king, who had the right to do this, David pronounced the death penalty. He said the rich man who treated the poor man like this, the man in that story, he deserves death. And you notice Nathan didn't argue with him. Nathan didn't say, you know, David, that might be a little bit over the top. Let's think about that. He doesn't argue with David at all. And when David here confesses and repents, that death penalty that should have rested on him was not taken away. What we're seeing here is that it was simply transferred to someone else. So God's justice in this story was not dismissed. It was simply aimed at another. And the person that it was aimed at in this story was, was a child who was the son of David. Can I say that again? What you're seeing in this story is this beautiful kind of foreshadowing of the truth of the gospel. What you're seeing is that the way that God was able to forgive sin was by allowing the son of David to pay for that sin with his life. Now, if you heard this story a couple thousand years ago, if you're an ancient Israelite and word of this got around, any thoughtful reader would, would look at that and say, man, that's amazing of God. Uh, you know, his patience, his long-suffering, his mercy, his kindness to his servant David, that's great. But right after that, you're thinking, but man, I, I wish I had what David had. I wish that I had a son of David who could stand in my place and be my substitute and take my sin and pay my penalty so that the Lord could take away my sin and I wouldn't have to die for all the stupid things I've done and the messes that I've made of my life. And the gospel says you do have that son of David. I think this is so amazing. This is so like God. Do you know that when you get to the New Testament, the very first verse of the entire New Testament, Matthew's gospel account, chapter one, verse one, the very first thing we're told about the Lord Jesus Christ is that he is the son of David. And he has come to do for you and I exactly what David's son does for him in this story. A commentary I read this week put it this way. For David, Yahweh's forgiveness was both marvelous and costly. There's no doubt that David was the one under the threat of death. David himself had judged Nathan's rich man, a son of death. Yet Nathan had assured David that he would not die, but a death would occur the child to be born would die. It is as if the child is David's substitute, 
I want readers to note the pattern here. For there are some of us who know this paradox of forgiveness that is both free and costly because a son of David has been our substitute. The reason that God could pardon David in this story is the same reason that he can pardon any of us. It's because Jesus Christ, the true son of David, has died in our place. And now by grace through faith in the name of Jesus, absolutely anybody can come to God and hear the same thing that David heard in this story. The Lord has taken away your sins. You will not die. That means regardless of what you have done, regardless of the life that you have lived, and even regardless of the people that you have hurt, when you come to God through Jesus with a posture of heart that David has here, you hear the same thing that David hears. The Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. And it's not because God simply sets his justice aside. It's because that justice rested on Jesus Christ in your place. And I want to tell you that if that sounds unfair to you, if that sounds scandalous to you, then I'm excited for you because you are finally beginning to understand the message that we call the gospel. I could end this teaching here, and I thought about doing that, but, but with a story as heavy as this, I just felt like it wouldn't be right if I didn't end by speaking to one specific person. There's a good chance that there's a number of people listening to this today that would say yes and amen to everything that you've heard. Uh, you know that the reason God can pardon you is because he punished Jesus Christ in your place, and that's, that's, that's great. However, maybe you're in this place where you know that objectively, but subjectively it hasn't become real to you. And so here you are, and, and you're, you're wrestling with the weight of guilt, and you're wrestling with the weight of shame and with condemnation for the things that you've done, for the times that you have been, David. And if that's you, I want to end today by making one final observation about this passage that I hope breathes life into you the way that it should. The final thing that spoke so much to me about this story that I just found so incredible is that this story could have simply been an isolated incident. This could have just been a one-off story in the Bible that didn't really lead to anything and didn't really function in any way except to be, you know, a warning of the power of sin. And even if that's all this story was, it would have still been very valuable. It just wouldn't have been very hopeful. But instead, when you zoom out to the whole, whole message of Scripture, what you'll find is that two, at least two things were produced as a result of this episode in David's life that wouldn't have happened any other way. Couldn't have happened any other way. The first is Psalm 51. Now, I don't have time to read it to you, but Psalm 51 is a prayer that David prayed as a direct result of this episode in his life. Literally, the introduction of the psalm says that David prayed this prayer when Nathan the prophet confronted him about his sin with Bathsheba. Psalm 51, if you are struggling with, with, with guilt or shame, condemnation, I cannot encourage you enough. Read it this week. It has been a source of hope and healing for countless people throughout the last several thousand years who find themselves where David found himself. And, and just, just to prove the point, let me point this out to you. This week, uh, I was putting my kids to bed. And um, I got a five-year-old daughter who wanted to teach my two-year-old son how to pray. And so we were going around the room praying, and I let her bat lead off. And I recorded her prayer without her permission. 
Uh, I've listened to it like 30 times since then. It puts me in a good mood every single time. And my daughter, while she was praying, this is exactly what she said. I wrote it down. She said, dear God, thank you for making our sins wash away. I swear to you, the Holy Spirit of God descended on that bedroom when my daughter said those words. If, if you have not heard the gospel articulated through the mouth of a child, I hope it happens for you one day. It is amazing how powerful it is. But the reason that I tell you that story is because that concept, follow me here, that concept of God washing away our guilt and our shame and our sin and making us whiter than snow, that was delivered to us through Psalm 51, which is a psalm that we would not have had except for this episode in David's life, which is just this powerful reminder that God can use our failures to provide so much hope and so much healing for other people. But as, as great as that is, and, and I'll end with this, something far greater than a psalm was produced by the events in this story. Because although David and Bathsheba would have never, ever in a million years guessed it, do you know that their union was the union through which God decided to deliver his own son, Jesus Christ, to humanity? The more that I thought about that this week, the more amazing that became to me. There were other kings in Israel, and David even, to his foolishness and stupidity, David had other wives besides Bathsheba. Yet for all of the lineages that Jesus Christ decided to travel to humanity through, to be delivered to us through, he chose to come to us deliberately including the union of David and Bathsheba. And I don't care what anybody tells me, the only reason that God would decide to do things like that is to remind us with this historical rock-solid piece of evidence that no matter how much a mess we make of our lives, he can do incredible things with even our worst failures. Let me, let me call the worship team up, and we're going to close with this. I told you it would get better before the end. To anybody here today who feels like, who, who knows you're David, if you're listening to me right now and you know you're David, your sin has separated you, it has deceived you, it has hurt the people around you, and it has cost you dearly. That's not a theory for you, that is a lived experience. And you're living under that guilt and that shame and that condemnation. I want to end today by reminding you that this story is not just a sobering picture of the destructive power of sin. It is a beautiful picture of the redeeming power of God. It's a story that reminds us all these years later that God can take our failure God can take our sinfulness. God can take the things we are most ashamed of and work the hardest to hide from other people. And he can use those very things to do inc incredibly amazing, beautiful things. But the only way that God can do that is if you and I get to the same place that David got to in this story. The only way that God can use your failure in that way is if, is if you are brought to the place where you can come before God with an open-handed willingness that says, Father, I have sinned against you. No excuses, no qualifications, no sidestepping, just radical ownership. Father, I have sinned against you. And the promise of the gospel is that every single person who comes to Jesus with that same posture of heart will hear the same thing that David heard in this story. The Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. Father God, I want to thank you so much 
that though we have been making an absolute mess of our lives since Genesis chapter 3 and an absolute mess of this world, that you are better at cleaning up our messes than we are at making them. Thank you for grace, Father. Thank you for, for hope. Thank you for uh, a, a transforming power that goes beyond our ability to ruin our lives. God, thank you that no matter what we've done, no matter how far we've fallen, that there's hope by grace through faith in the name of Jesus. God, my, my desire for us as a church is that this story would do the two things that I said it could do on the front end of our time together, that, that it would be a story that would help us avoid failures that we would otherwise fall into, that we would see the sobering nature of sin and flee from it, the way your word says. But with that, God, for those of us that are already in the midst of a failure, which is probably all of us to one degree or another, that by grace through faith in the name of Jesus, we would get to the feet of the cross. We would own our sin. We would rise in repentance, and you would restore to us the joy of our salvation. In the name of your son, Jesus, we ask these things. Amen. Thank you.